Our text this morning is the last portion of Ephesians chapter 2, specifically verses 19 through 22. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this, your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Renew our minds, O Lord. Remind us of your great and mighty work. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a cinematic technique that perhaps you have observed while watching a film. It's when the director starts out with the camera pinned in very tightly to a detail. And then slowly the camera pans back more and more, further and further back, until the point that we can see all of the context and the structure of that initial tight shot. We need to sometimes pull back from something up close to get the big picture. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us here this morning. At the very end of chapter 2, Paul is pulling back from the detailed descriptions of God's salvation. And he is doing so in a way so that we can understand the bigger picture. You see... The book of Ephesians is about the overwhelming grace of God. But it is also about the objects of that grace. That is, the church. And as we go on through this book, we will see especially in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, we will see Paul's admonitions and encouragements to the church as to how we are to live following the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning we're going to look at the household of God, what it means to be a part of the people of God, the church of God, in a shorter vignette. Paul is going to put before our eyes three different pictures of the people of God. First, a picture of the people of God as God's kingdom. Second, 
A picture of the people of God as God's family. And then third, a picture of the people of God as God's dwelling place. God's kingdom, God's family, and God's dwelling place. And in these three pictures, Lord willing, we will see ourselves as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as God has intended us to be. Let's begin then by looking at God's kingdom as this picks up in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now Paul is about to start here on a major theme. He is about to describe what it means to be saved. And he is moving from the description of salvation to what it means to be saved. In chapter 1, we saw God's great sovereign work of salvation for believers. In chapter 2, we saw this work of God from our perspective. We saw what we were saved from. Sin, death, guilt. We saw what we are saved for. Life, union with Christ, and God's glory. And now Paul is about to talk about the corporate nature or aspect of salvation. He's about to tell us what it means to be a part of the corporate people of God. And he begins here by telling us about God's kingdom, and he begins with telling us what we are not any longer. Now, It's very important for us to understand that this world is not our home. This is a starting point of mentality for Christians. Because you see, it's very important how we look at the world affects how we live. Doesn't it? Let me give you one example that you probably experience every single day. When you are out on the highways and byways, I-10... Do you drive exactly the speed limit? If you're anything like me, you don't. You see, when the weather isn't well, when there's rain or perhaps some flooding or some some ice, you drive slower because everyone else around you is driving slower. And when it's a gorgeous day with the sun shining, you have to watch yourself, don't you? Because everyone around you is a little heavy on the gas pedal. And before you know it, you're driving the same speed that they are. You see, we get caught up in what is around us. This is just our nature. And so Paul tells us that we have to understand this, that this world is not our home, otherwise we will be caught up in the world. You see, we are not alone. There are people around us all the time, and God doesn't intend us to be alone. Let me let you in on a secret. God's plan is bigger than you. Now, the good news of the gospel is that God's plan includes you. But don't think that God's plan begins and ends with you and your salvation. God's plan is far bigger It encompasses the entirety of the church. And so Paul tells us that God has planned for us not to be strangers and aliens. 
Now, what is a stranger? A stranger is someone in the midst of other people who, is not, who are not like him. And Paul has used this term recently to describe the place that the Gentiles had. But now... They are no longer strangers. They are brought into the people of God, and now the Gentiles have a place in the people of God. They are no longer aliens, no longer strangers, Paul says to this church at Ephesus. They're not cut off by walls, not cut off by ordinances, or by the law. What Paul says is that we belong to the people of God. But there's a great irony in the midst of this. Because to belong to the people of God makes us strangers in the world. So we are no longer strangers to the people of God, but because we are brought into the people of God, we are pilgrims and strangers in the world. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because the world is a place that is tainted by sin. Even more than that, the world is a place that is in rebellion against God. The world that rebels against God and seeks its own things. And so we should not be surprised if the world doesn't honor Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Jesus tells us himself in John chapter 7. He says, the world hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You see, in order to follow Jesus, we must separate ourselves from the world. Because the world is evil and rebels against Jesus Christ. Now, this does not mean that we need to go out of the world entirely. The pastor is not telling you to ignore everyone you will meet this week. I don't advise you strap a rocket ship to your back and try to shoot yourself out of the atmosphere. That's not what it means to be separated from the world. What it means is, is to go out into the world, but to realize that the world is not our home. And that makes a fundamental difference. This afternoon, my family and I are going to squeeze all of us into our vehicle and load all of our luggage and set out to go see our family eventually in suburban Detroit. And I hope, Lord willing, to make it as far as Memphis, Tennessee this evening so I can get at least a little bit of rest. And we have a hotel reserved for us. It's a hotel with a a complimentary buffet breakfast and with an exercise room and a swimming pool, and free Wi-Fi, and comfortable beds. But you see, we're going to arrive there in Memphis, and we're going to sleep, and then we're going to get up and leave. We're not going to worry about if we've used the swimming pool. We're not going to stay behind just to do a little more Wi-Fi surfing. We're not going to stay for another meal. Because you see, that's not our destination. That's not our home. It's a way station. I'm thankful that we'll have a roof over our heads and we'll be dry. I'm thankful that there will be food. I'm thankful for the pillows and the covers. But I don't want to stay there. I want to go on to my destination. And this is how the Christian needs to view the world. We are simply passing through. Oh, how the church would be a blessing to the world if it viewed it less as a place to put down roots and more like a Motel 6. You see, 
We are not of this world. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. And Paul is going to give us examples about what this looks like later in this book. But in the main, we are to live lives to show others that we belong to Jesus and not the world. Peter puts it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the life of faith. It is to confess that this world is not our home. After all, this is the entirety of the 11th chapter of the book to Hebrews. As The author tells us over and over again about those who lived the life of faith. Everything that they did was in faith. And it's summed up here in verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Strangers and pilgrims. That's Abraham. That's Joseph. That's Moses. That's Isaiah. That's David. Followers of the Lord our God. To be a part of the people of God is to understand that the world is not your home. And Paul tells us that we don't need to worry that the world is not our home because we have a home. We have a a state, a new citizenship. That is, we are now fellow citizens with the saints. You know, we are strangers to the world because we are no longer aliens to God. And this describes for us, in crystal clarity, the difference between being a Christian and not. The difference between being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and not following Him is definite. It is absolute You either are a Christian, or you are not. You either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, that His work has brought redemption and forgiveness of sins, or you do not. You cannot be a little bit Christian. If you think of it in terms of the citizenship analogy, imagine if I asked you, what country do you live in? And you said, I'm an American-Canadian. What do you mean you're an American-Canadian? Yeah, I live right on the line, the border between the United States and Canada. I have my right foot in Canada and my left foot in the United States. And that's how I live all the time. You would look at someone who said that and you'd say, you're crazy. Pick a side. No one lives like that. You're neither. And yet I think often in our minds we think that this is the way we can treat the Lord. We can at times be for Him and at times ignore Him. We can at times be fervent followers of Jesus Christ and then at other times despair and be hopeless. But you see, to be a citizen of God's kingdom means to be a part of the people of God and to be a part of God's state and kingdom. What a blessing this is for us. 
to know that God wants us to know for a surety that we are a part of the people of God, that we are a part of the body of Christ. Now, we are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, this idea of citizenship is a very big deal. Some of you have even gone through or know people who have gone through the process of applying for citizenship in America or another country. You have to fill out lots of forms, two, three, four times over. You have to have all sorts of identification. You have to take tests. You have to talk to people. You have to drive and wait in lines. But you see... That difficulty with citizenship was nothing compared to the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to change your citizenship. Citizenship was a source of great pride. You were a part of a people. It was very, very difficult to obtain. You could not normally be naturalized as a Roman citizen. It was virtually impossible. But now, Paul says, you are not naturalized citizens. You are supernaturalized citizens. God has made you a part of His kingdom, of His rule and reign. Now, what does that mean then for you and for me? I think it has several practical implications for us. The first is that we now have a common history. Now think about this. As a part of the kingdom of God, as fellow citizens with the saints, the history of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of their history is our history now. Men and women who lived thousands of miles away, thousands of years ago, they're a part of our history. It's very real for us, isn't it? When we talk to our children in Sunday school classes about Moses and Joshua and the things they did, we may as well be talking about our great-grandparents. It's vivid, and we want them to understand and to take hold of that history. Because, you see, they have followed the Lord. And their history becomes ours because we are a part of the kingdom of God. We also have a common language. Now, this does not mean we all speak English. It means that we have a common way of thinking about the world and speaking to each other. We have the language of faith. Those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ do not despair... They speak the language of faith. Help me, O Lord. You see, we all come together no matter where we are from, no matter what our background, we are brought together through a common way of viewing the world and speaking about it, the language of faith. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because one of the things that we are told in the New Testament is that our Lord Jesus Christ sent His Holy Spirit to indwell believers And the Spirit gives us a common language, a language of the heart, a language that grips us and takes us to love the things that God loves. 
We have a common history. And we have a common language. We also have a common loyalty. No matter who we are, no matter where we are from, the Lord is first. Jesus is our master. And everything else comes second. I like to think of this in an image of stories that my grandfather used to tell me about World War II. Perhaps you've heard similar stories about how in various cities and times and places, if you would put a group of Marines together with a group of army men, together with a group of Navy sailors, it would be inevitable that a fight would break out. As they sought to, to determine which the best branch of the military it was. And they would squabble amongst themselves. And yet, as those men went to the front, they were as united as united could be. They had a common master. They were working on a common purpose. And they were against a common enemy. And they would lay down their lives for one another. Men who had just been in fisticuffs a week before. This is what we as the church of Jesus Christ must have as our focus. Our common master is Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have differences amongst ourselves. We do. But those differences need to be brought under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have a common destination You see, we see that this world is not our home, that we are headed to a heavenly city. Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, in Philippians chapter 3. You see, as the people of God, we are gathered together with a common goal, a common history, a common language. But it is not just that we are citizens of God's kingdom. God has so much more for us, Paul says. He also says that we are members of the household of God. You see, we're not just citizens walking around a large state. God does not want us to be lonely either. There is a more intimate connection that we have as the people of God. We are members of the household of God. Now this word for household refers to the extended family that would live usually in one building, one home, under the authority of the patriarch. And there were rights and there were privileges that went along with this household, this family. But more importantly, there was a relationship that bound members of the family together. I think we all know and understand that family ties are more intimate, are tighter than ties of citizenship. You see, perhaps you've seen it this way in your family. You have a group of brothers, and they enjoy shoving each other and pushing and punching and calling each other names. And sometimes that will happen, and there'll be a third party on the side, and they'll try to get in involved on it. They'll pick up with the name-calling or the pushing and the shoving. And all of a sudden, you'll see all of the brothers come together and say, Oh, wait a minute here. You can't hit him. He's my brother. Nobody gets to call him that except me. He's my brother. 
You see, they close ranks. Because there's that intimate connection that we have as a family. It's much more significant to be a part of a family than a part of a town or a state or a country. You can only become a member of a family either by birth or by adoption. Now, interestingly enough, the Scripture speaks of both of these ways. That we are born by the new birth into the people of God and we are adopted by our Heavenly Father into His family. And it begins with the Lord. Our family relationship begins with our relationship with the Lord. Everyone who is reconciled has the same Father. Now we have to understand the way the Bible explains salvation and the family of God. That is why we are redeemed. To be a part of a family. We are not made a part of a family to be redeemed. We are redeemed to be made a part of a family. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 4. Now notice the order. Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might obtain the adoption as sons. Do you hear the order? Christ has redeemed for Himself a people that they might be adopted into a family. You see, this is our purpose. This is what God has designed for His church. And it is because of this that we have a closeness in the church. Think about the opening words of the Lord's Prayer. Does Jesus pray, My Father? No. It's our Father. You see, there is a relationship here to the Father. We all look to the Father for all that we need. We instinctively cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says this is a natural consequence of God's salvation. That we have a a family relationship that begins with the Father. But we also have relationships with each other, don't we? Have you ever noticed how often in the New Testament the word brother is used? And how often it is used to describe those who are not a part of the same physical family? If you hadn't noticed it, I've done a little research for you. In the book of Acts, the word brother is used 56 times. In 1 Corinthians, it's used 35 times. In Romans, it's used 19 times. And the overwhelming number of cases is to describe fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have this family relationship with each other because of God. And it is very much the way that siblings have their own relationship with each other. Now think about this, those of you who are siblings. Why do you have a relationship with each other? Why are you brothers or sisters or brother and sister? What's the cause of that? It's, of course, your parents. You relate to each other because of your parents. You are all your parents' children, and therefore you have a relationship together as siblings. 
And this is how we should view the church. We all have a relationship with each other because of our relationship with God. Now, we need to understand as being a part of the church that it is like being a family. The relationship is not optional. My guess is that in most of our families, at some point or another, one of the siblings has said, I don't want him to be my brother anymore. She's not my sister anymore at all. And mom and dad look and they say, Sorry, not an option. Y'all are stuck with each other. In the same way we need to think about the church. We can't be saying, Oh, I don't like the way that person talks. Oh, I don't like what that person wants to do. Sorry, you're stuck with each other. You have the same Heavenly Father. And because of that, you are siblings. That family relationship draws us together as the church of Jesus Christ, as the people of God. Now, this is a great blessing, because in your family, where is there better than in your family to know you are accepted and you are comfortable? We will do things in our families that we would never do at a neighbor's home. Never do, ever, out at a restaurant or out in public. Right? Because everyone just puts up with us. We're comfortable. We know we're accepted. We're not going to be thrown out of the house. God wants you as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to know that comfort and that security about being a part of a family. Paul then moves on thirdly to a third image. An image of a building. That we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now this image would have been very familiar to people in Paul's day. Temples, buildings were built to be the manifestation of a God. You would look and see a big building and you would say, that's where that God is. That's where this God is. And this was true of the Jews as well. The temple was the manifestation of the place where God dwelt, where His name was found. The Lord instructed Solomon to build him a place for His name to inhabit and for people to know that He was there and He was real. But now there's a problem. With the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, one place is not enough. Because Jesus has come to reconcile the whole world. Jesus has come to make one new people of two separate peoples. We can't just have one place anymore. Jesus has established a people who are universal. The knowledge of the Lord is to cover all of the earth, the scripture says. We are no longer as the people of God to say to people, come to us. Now we are told to go to them in Matthew 28. And with the giving of the Holy Spirit to indwell each follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
God's presence is found throughout all of the world. So then what must we do? God must build a new temple, a universal temple, and that temple is the people of God. And he begins describing how it is constructed, that it is well constructed. The first thing we need to understand is that the strength of any building depends upon its foundation. Have you ever been in the basement of a skyscraper? You see, we think of skyscrapers as reaching to the sky 50, 60, 70 stories. But they go down almost as far because the foundation needs to be stable. If you don't have a stable foundation, the whole building will collapse. We learned this when we left the land of foundations and basements in Cleveland, Ohio, and moved to Jackson, Mississippi. And our real estate agent had to teach us about a thing called Yazoo clay. Yazoo clay is a type of soil that runs in bands under the ground, and it expands dramatically, especially with hydration. And if you purchase a home that has Yazoo clay near the foundation, you are in trouble. When you go look for a home in Jackson, you spend as much time walking around the boring slab as you do looking at all of the interesting things inside the home. Because if the foundation isn't strong, if it breaks, if it crumbles, the whole building falls. And so Paul tells us that the foundation that God has laid is the apostles and the prophets. Now, this can be confusing because we also remember that Paul said that no one can lay any other foundation than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. And so we ask ourselves, Paul, are you saying now that the apostles and prophets are more important than Jesus? That they're the foundation? And I don't think this is the case because I don't think Paul contradicts himself. But what he is describing with both the apostles and the prophets are those who have brought forth the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel to the world. He's referring to their teaching, to their declaring of who Jesus is. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 15 and chapter 16 when he says that the apostles are to bring his truth to the world. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus says this in John 15, 26 and 27. And then again in chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, the apostles and the prophets have laid down the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done and God's word. 
Now what this means then is the unity of God's people depends upon the truth. The unity of the church does not depend primarily on its mission. It doesn't depend primarily on what people have in common. The unity of Christ's church depends upon His truth in His Word. And if we are to be a temple constructed strong to the glory of God, then we must acknowledge this and understand that the foundation is the truth of God's Word. Paul then begins to move on. He singles out Jesus as the cornerstone. Now the cornerstone is the most important stone. It is not just the one that happens to be in the corner. It sets the level for all the rest of the foundation. It is the strong piece that keeps everything solid. It gives stability to all of the foundation. Now when we hear the word stone, I think at times we're thinking of things maybe perhaps two, three feet in size, stacked up. Do you know that the cornerstone of Solomon's temple was 29 feet long? It was designed not to be moved, to set the level exactly for all the rest of the temple. You see, Jesus is the most important part of the foundation. He is the cornerstone. Now, The world wants another stone. The world has rejected Jesus. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. Because they want to do their own thing, go their own way. But God is the one who has laid the cornerstone in Christ to bring unity, to bring strength, and to bring purpose to the temple. The final thing that Paul describes are the actual construction stones. That's you and me. The whole structure being joined together, to being joined with Jesus. And our unity comes as we are fit together. You see, the unity of the church and the people of God comes as we are joined together with Jesus for one purpose. We cannot be on our own. We cannot do our own thing. We are joined for the purpose of Christ. Do you ever wonder where your place is in the church? You see, what Paul is saying here is, each and every one of you has a place. The church isn't sufficient or finished without you. Actually, this temple is a work in progress. They don't have the final certificate of occupancy yet. Jesus is still gathering together His people And someday they will all be gathered together and Jesus will return. And the church, the temple, will be complete. Finally then, what is the purpose of this temple? Paul tells us that God is the architect. That God is the builder. Why does he do this? He does it so that his glory would be seen. The temple is for the dwelling place of God. The stones are shaped by Him. 
The stones are attached to Jesus by Him. They are linked to one another by Him. You see, this temple is built that the glory of God would be seen throughout all of the world. And in the end, what is significant here is the whole. God is building His church. His church is where He is to be seen. Now this tells us what God has prepared for us. What God has prepared for His people is to show His glory. That is the grand design of the church. That is the design of each individual believer that is a part of God's people. Are you living your life today to show the glory of God? Do you long to be a part of that great building where God's glory is seen? You see, if we focus upon that, we won't worry about what's happening out in the world. We won't have any thoughts of defeat or depression. We will understand that God is on the move, that He is building His church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that Jesus is coming back. That the entirety of the world will see His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this encouragement that You have given to us through the Apostle Paul. Lord, there is none like you. You are indeed the most glorious. And we thank you that you are building up your people as a temple to show your glory. That we might even be a part of the expansion of your kingdom. That we might know one another and love one another as family. Lord, be with us this day. Encourage us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust him by faith. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.